Well, good morning. All right. I am on, right? Okay. Um, this is different, right? Uh, I think there might have been a little mix-up in the... I think there was probably a typo with the, the text. And um, I just wanted to share something before. And it's not really related to that text. Uh, you know, healing is always weird with people when we discuss it. Because not everybody's healed the same way. And so people are, well, you know, they tiptoe around this. But I remember, I remember a story in scripture, and you know this story, and there was a man who was a, a synagogue leader, and his name was Jairus. And Jairus came and said, hey, my daughter's sick, and she's 12 years old, can you heal? And as they're on the path, there is a servant that's coming back to him to tell him, your daughter's dead. But in the middle of the path, there is a woman who believes in the power of God and she touches the garment of his, you know, she touches the fringe of his cloak and she's healed all in the eyes of Jairus. And I wonder in a simple and just simplify it, I wonder if this is done, if this was intentionally done to say, Jairus, press on. Despite everything that's going on, your daughter will rise again. We will rise again. This is to reveal, you know, the thing is, is this story that we are going to share today is not to say that we're going to live to get forever the way that we are. I hope that's not the case. It's to say God's power. He has promised his soon return where there will be no more death, sorrow, crying, and pain. And this is just the glimpse of it. So just because of tradition, we will sing our song. Well, my song. And then we'll get started. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Father, praise and honor and glory be to you. Lord, I ask that the Spirit of the Lord is upon this family. But not just this family here, but our whole family. May we be inspired. May we be encouraged. May, we, may that faith be renewed that you are not only just real, but you are powerful. Be glorified today. Anoint us all. In Jesus Christ's powerful name we pray, amen. Now by a sign of hands, how many of you know this family up here? All right, so they know you. But you also saw that there were some hands that were not here, I mean not raised. Can you please tell us, and I don't know who's going to do it. Oh, is it Ken over here? Can you please tell us who you are? In a couple minutes. <laughs> a couple words. Yeah. Um, my name is Kenneth Moore. 
Um, this is my wife, Sharon. My two daughters, Nicole and Heather. We've been members here for, you know, it's got to be going on about 10 years. Um, I work in a, in a power plant, and I have for the last, uh, going on 18 years. Um, Nicole is a ICU nurse at LaGrange Adventist Hospital. Heather is a recent graduate from Andrews University, which we're very proud of. She also has plans to continue studying um, in her field of psychology. She's very interested in surfing, something that her parents are maybe not so interested in. And, uh, and very, very interested in music, as you probably have seen in the past, as is Nicole. Nicole's current interests are sitting somewhere in the pews. <laughs> not to point them out. <laughs> not to point them out or anything. But Christian and Nicole are to be married in June of this year. Mm -hmm. So that pretty much takes care of Nicole's interests. <laughs> All right. So amen, she's marrying a Christian. Um, so I'm sure you've never heard that before. I hope you haven't. So That's a good thing. <laughs> let me ask you, and maybe... Sharon, since this sort of revolves around your life, why are you here? Why, why are we sitting here? Can you tell us in a, in a minute or two why we're here? I was very ill for a very long time, and it was almost transparent. Hardly anybody could tell that I was ill until in 2009, I was diagnosed with liver cirrhosis. This is unusual. It took us by surprise, but over the years it progressed until it got so bad that I needed a liver transplant or I would die. And that's why we're here, because God brought us through this in his mercy at every stage through umpteen miracles, and we can only highlight a couple of them today, but rest assured there are many more that you will not hear about today, but they're there. Day after day, God showed us mercy and answered our prayers and your prayers. And I felt it responsible to come back. I know the church prayed for me over a long time period. And I felt responsible to, I needed to come back and tell you that he answered your prayers and to thank you for them. Amen. Can it, you didn't say it, but I'm, I'm going to ask you, when you were diagnosed, what stage were you at? Stage four, the last stage of liver cirrhosis. So at diagnosis, she was told how long would life expectancy? They don't, they don't give you a time frame because everybody is so different. It just progresses, but this is like the last stage. Usually three to four, three to four years of life expectancy. Three to four years of life expectancy from diagnosis in stage four. Okay. This was last stage. Um, and that's... They're her first knowledge of it. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask you, Heather, I mean, Nicole, as even though, and I like the analogy that was given when I visited with you. What was her liver like? 
So a normal liver, if you can imagine a regular sponge, like a brand new sponge, if you pour water on top of it, the water will go through it, filter, um, and then come out the other side. So the liver's main two jobs, although it has many, are to filter the blood and to make sure that the blood goes in the right places and all the fluid stays where it's supposed to and the vessels and the veins and stuff. Um, in stage four liver cirrhosis, which is as bad as liver cirrhosis gets, it's got a lot of scarring, a lot of scar tissue. It turns the liver kind of into a rock sort of a consistency. Um, so if you can imagine like an old crusty sponge, if you pour water on top of that crusty sponge, the water doesn't go through it. It goes around it, over top of it. And so with her disease, what it would cause is the toxins to build up in her blood because they weren't being filtered out. So those toxins would go to her brain, toxify her brain, and give her dementia-like symptoms that would progress from, we counted like five stages that she would have of confusion, sleepiness, um, all the way to the point where she was nearly unresponsive. Um, and then the second thing it did was her fluid wasn't going in the right places. It would go to her stomach and build up in her stomach. Um, and then it started switching paths to where it would start filling up her lungs and she couldn't breathe. And we'd have to get her emergently to the ER so that they could tap out all of that water so she could breathe again. And she was sick for seven years exactly and in the hospital for 40 days exactly down to the day. Just one more quick question. Growing up, I always thought liver cirrhosis came from one thing, alcohol. What happened? There's uh, actually, they're coming up with a couple different causes of liver cirrhosis now. The main one, of course, is alcoholism, but in her case, she's never had a drink of alcohol in her life. So um, doctors didn't believe her at first because it was not common to have somebody with this bad of liver cirrhosis, but it's also caused by hereditary disorders. Um, so it starts out with fatty liver disease and then it increases to the point of liver cirrhosis. Okay. The technical name for her type of liver cirrhosis was NASH. And that's an acronym for something that I can't hope to pronounce. Um, however, as of 2018, it is now, it is eclipsed hepatitis C as the second biggest reason for liver cirrhosis in the United States. Okay, cool. Now this one, I don't know, I'm looking for something concise. and I'm not going to look at you, Ken. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to... I want concise, just so that we have a skeleton to work with, what was the concise timeline from diagnosis till transplant? And then we'll fill in a little bit after that. So, I was diagnosed in November of 2009. My transplant occurred in November of 2016, exactly seven years to the month later. Amazing. Um, all right. So now is the time that we fill in some of the details here. Uh, so when I, when I met Sharon, I actually met her over the phone the first time, if you remember. I had called, and she might not remember, um, but I had called, and we had discussed this, and I think I had talked with Afif. He's like, you need to meet this lady, Sharon. 
She had just had a transplant. Remember, I got here in January of last year. She had just had her just over a month ago before I had arrived. Um, so the first time that I actually physically met you, you had your mask on. You would come in with your mask. Um, she doesn't remember. I remember. Uh, so I would, it seemed to me as we talked that the last six months are really the details that you saw miracle after miracle after miracle. I mean, I know that the Lord took you the whole way through, uh, but could you give us some of the, a little bit of what happened in the last six months that you just saw the hand of the Lord right there with you? Okay. Um, preliminarily, though, I have to tell you, when I started doctoring immediately after diagnosis, I was doctoring with a local hospital in Naperville. They said, this is too complicated for us. We don't deal with this. I was referred to specialists in some of the local teaching hospitals, the university level. The first referral was to Loyola. Um, I take that back. First one was to University of Illinois at Chicago. Then, within a short time, they referred me on over to Loyola University Hospital, and I doctored with them for a while. I was evaluated for transplant there, but they said, no, you're too complicated for us. We're going to refer you to Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago. A few years later, even Loyola had even put in what's called a shunt or a TIPS procedure, which is becoming more common, but it's like putting a little shunt in to the liver to help the fluid get through. Loyola put that in. It staved off any further need for immediate treatment for about a year, and then the shunt or the TIPS kind of got clogged, and they tried to open it. Then they referred me to Northwestern. By the time I was doctoring with Northwestern, they said, well, that is still isn't working. We're gonna put in a second, a parallel TIPS. So they put in a second one, which is extremely rare. There are only three veins that, can, that a shunt can go into in the liver, and now two of mine were filled with shunts. It's kept working, and it was really a bridge to the transplant because it postponed the need for transplant because I wasn't on anybody's transplant list. Northwestern continued to evaluate me, put me on their list, and I was remained inactive on the list for a year, at which time they reevaluated their criteria for putting people on a list, and I no longer met the criteria. So the beginning of 2016, I was no longer on a list, and my liver was worsening. In uh, mid the first part of 2016, I also developed a melanoma on my shoulder. And the evaluation or um, analysis of that showed that it was 0.5 centimeters, millimeters, from kicking me off of anybody's would-be list. So things were just getting worse as far as I was concerned. I went to my local physician and said, I need help. He said, well, I don't know what you're going to do because you, you don't have a backup plan. You're not on a list. And I said, well, get me on a list. He says, the only organization I think may take you is Mayo Clinic. We went through insurance, jumping through hoops. They okayed me for a consultation only at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I followed that up 
I came back home, they evaluated me, said, well, we would put you on our list if you got worse. So I came back home and yes, things got worse. The only way they would put me on a list was if I agreed to have a dual surgery, which is two surgeries in one, because they wanted to do a sleeve gastrectomy at the same time to help prevent the problems that originally caused some of the cirrhosis. And I wasn't real keen on that. That was the condition, and so it was kind of still up in the air. But in November, I got much worse, and I was hospitalized here for a week, and during that week, my, my kidneys were acutely injured, and my liver continued into total failure. They said, get her to Mayo. On a Friday evening, they said, get her out of here, she's going to die. So I took an ambulance ride, six hours to Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, and God did provide the drivers of the ambulance. It required two people, one being a nurse-type person. They had to volunteer for this trip because they had to drive there, not stay overnight, turn around, and head back. And that was the first snowstorm of the 2016 season in Minnesota. Mm. It's like every turn that came, every step we took, everything seemed impossible. But God provided. So I got there. They admitted me on a Saturday. They activated me on the list on Sunday. And they kept me on the list for uh, like four days, during which time they were making me better, of course, because I was hospitalized. You, you, you said they activated you on a Sunday. Is, what time? And is that important, the time that they, that they activated you? I will let somebody else Oh, <laughs> she will over. let somebody else. Okay. <laughs> She showed up on Saturday morning, early, I mean like three in the morning. Um, we got to the hospital and the transplant team came to evaluate her. And the following day, I think it, it, it went at midnight on Sunday morning, you know, and military time, it would be zero, 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 one, you know, that, she was she was listed. I was listed on Sunday. Do you want to tell about the rest? Of Would you do the rest of it? Um, okay. So part of the whole list thing is they have this lep, this uh, list called a MELD score, and what they do is they take three of your lab values: a liver value, a kidney value, and then. Uh, how thin your blood is level. And they calculate those, um, and the number that they come out with is called your MELD score. So depending on your MELD score, which goes from 15 to 40, um, that's kind of the ladder of how bad you are. And the people at the top of the list, like the 30s to 40s, those are the ones that would get the transplant next, depending on matching blood type. Um, but how the list works is, once you hit your high score, um, they'll calculate you every day, but if you hit a high score, you get to keep that score for exactly one week. And at midnight on the seventh day is when you fall off of wherever you were, and if you've gotten a little bit better, they recalculate your score and kick you back down to the list. Um, so, like we said, she was listed on a Sunday, 
and um, I may be going a little out of That's order okay. here. Okay. Just do it. <laughs> so uh, on the fifth day, I think it was Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Day, they said, there's nothing more we can do for you here except for you to just kind of wait for a transplant. Um, by this time, her kidneys were out of failure. They were recovered. She was still in liver failure, but there was nothing they could do about that short of a transplant. So um, they discharged her from the hospital, and they said, just stay in town until the end of your seventh day, and then go home. But until that seventh day, we still are going to be searching for a, for a liver for you. Um, so Heather was going to have to go back to school, and I was going to, we only had one car up there, so I was going to drive her and then drive back to Mayo Clinic. And um, so we left on a Friday, I think, or Sabbath. I think, we, yeah, we left there on Sabbath, and Heather was going to head back on Sunday, and I was going to head back to Mayo on Sunday. Before we left, we got a call, and Heather can explain that later, um, but saying that they had a liver for her. Um, so she actually went into surgery at 11 p.m. on the seventh day, right before she would have fallen off the list and, wouldn't, and would have been kicked back down to the bottom and not gotten a liver. Talk about the 11th hour, right? Literally. It's also important to note that the average wait time for someone in, with Sharon's blood type on the list prior to transplant is a year and a half. Wow. Since we, we are going a little out of the order, but it's okay. Why don't you tell us about that phone call? Because who was the first one that got called about the transplant? <laughs> tell us how that happened. Okay, so this is actually my favorite part of the story because... Because okay. <laughs> it's her story. No. <laughs> um, okay, so let me just set the stage for you. So I was in school at the time that this transplant was happening. This was in the midst of midterms in, was it my, yeah, it was my senior year. And I had research projects upon research projects and so many things to do, so many tests to do that I just, I was completely at a loss with what to do. Should I stay with them and not make them go back home and just stay until, you know, the transplant thing is up? I, I don't know if that would have shown more hope and faith on my end, but... We, we ended up just, me, Nicole, and Grandma all drove back to our house on Sabbath, right before the transplant listing would have expired. And I was going to go back to Andrews at about mm, 10 o'clock. Um, but so we got there, stayed the night, woke up. Grandma was over at our house making sure everything was fine um, before I headed out to school and Nicole headed back to Mayo to just be with them and, you know, give them a car and, and whatever. Um, the night before, I had prayed harder than I've ever prayed in my life, um, and there is pretty much nothing that I could say to describe that, except if you have ever felt like everything in your life depended on that moment, that's what my prayer was like. And so... Getting back on uh, Sunday morning, I was getting ready to leave. Uh, me being me, and actually our family being the way that we are, I planned to leave at 9, but I ended up leaving, well, trying to leave at about 10.30. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> um, and uh, so I stayed longer than I was supposed to have, and Grandma stayed longer than she was supposed to have, and so did Nicole. We just wanted to make sure everybody was doing okay. At 10.30, the home phone rang, 
And that was strange because if anybody wants to get a hold of us, that is not the phone that they call. Yeah, it was the landline. Nobody calls us on landline except scammers. <laughs> and so um, I, uh, I was the only one in the kitchen at the time. I looked at the phone and it said the name of the primary liver doctor surgeon person on it. And I just looked at it and I almost waited to pick it up. I was just so nervous what to happen. And I picked up the phone and I said, hello? She's like, oh, hello, is this Sharon? And I was like, uh, no, Sharon's my mother, number one. And number two, she's still at Mayo Clinic with you? Question mark. And she's like, oh, well, this is actually the only phone number we even have on file for your entire family. And I wanted to call and tell you that we have a liver for her. So I yelled on the phone. I feel really bad for her ears at that point. But I yelled on the phone. Grandma didn't know what was happening. Nicole kind of got the gist by the end of the phone call. And then I was just ecstatic. So anyways, the doctor calls them, tells them to get ready within two hours or, yeah, two, excuse me, two hours um, to get ready for the surgery and get into Mayo Clinic to get her ready and everything. And um, I called everybody I knew, and we hopped in the car as soon as possible and drove up in whatever weather it was. We didn't really care. It snowed a lot, and it was terrible weather conditions, but we were going to be there no matter what. Um, and I think that's, that's it on my part. Yeah, they had the car. We were in a hotel. But we were supposed to be at the hospital. So we took a taxi to the hospital. Packed up our stuff and took a taxi to the hospital to check in. Hmm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna change direction just a little bit because you briefly said a couple of things that could have severely derailed this transplant. Um, Ken, would you mind sharing just a couple of those details, maybe a little bit more in detail? You'd mentioned the melanoma. Again, how close you were. By the way, I'm going to ask you, Nicole, if she would have been kicked off the list, like if, if it was big enough of melanoma, how would she have gotten back on the list? She couldn't have. Stage 4 cirrhosis ends in two ways, either transplant or death. And if you've ever had stage 3 cancer in any part of your body, you can never get on a list because the risk is too high of getting cancer back and wasting the liver. So she was half a millimeter, if you know how big a millimeter is, away from never getting a transplant. Okay, now continue. Um, the melanoma part was two-part. A, if it spreads to a lymph node in the area, um, that also would knock you out off the list. And if it would have been three millimeters deep, it would, would have also knocked her off the list. And, and that was a huge concern when I found out that she did in fact have uh, the melanoma that, uh, that was, uh, uh, you know, from my standpoint, a, a very difficult time because we knew at the time my mom was still alive and she was a nursing professor and she was telling me that the details about this. So it was a pretty scary time for, I think, our, our entire family. Um, one other person I have to mention is in the audience, and that is Sharon's mom, Frances. Mm -hmm. And she was 
a crucial and pivotal part of this whole thing. While Nicole and I were trying to handle our schedules to be with her, because with this chemical issue with her, um, with her mental state, it, it required somebody to be with her all the time. So I couldn't be there. And if it weren't for Grandma, we don't know what we would have done. So she should actually be sitting up here with us. But she refuses. <laughs> and and to, to add to that, part of this story is put together because of Grandma's journal. Is that correct? Didn't she yeah. journal? Grandma kept a, pretty much a daily journal of all the horrible things that were going on. But with this altered mental state, the funny thing is, I, despite it being a physical disease, I think it was harder on the rest of the family than me because my mental state allowed me just to be kind of, okay. And we, God provided us many, many hysterically funny things that happened, you know. I claimed one day, you know, we, Mom and I were sitting out on the back porch talking about how what a beautiful sky it was because she was the all-the-time babysitter because I couldn't be left alone. And the dog was at the screen door wanting out, and I said, yeah, it's too bad. She doesn't feel good today. Mom says, what do you mean? I said, well, she's got mumps. Can't you tell by looking at her that the dog had mumps? <laughs> and it's like just crazy, crazy outlandish things, but they made perfect sense to me at the time. So <laughs> that, that, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a neat thing about the last, that, that seven years, um, there was a fairly high entertainment value from time to time. <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you guys that a little bit more. Was it scary, I mean, that she was off during this time? Yeah, so let me explain a little bit about that. Um, I guess the one studying psychology in the family, I guess I would get this question, but okay. So uh, we kind of outlined four stages that she was um, in mental status, if you will. Um, say stage zero is where she's completely cognizant, perfectly fine, normal, and everything. Stage one is when she's getting real tired and she cannot stay awake no matter what. That's when we knew things are maybe turning to be kind of bad. Um, <laughs> stage two is when she would start having mood swings. So she would get real angry and real sobby and just crazy emotional like we didn't quite know how to handle that a lot of times and I'm sure there was better ways to handle it but <laughs> um, she also uh, started to tell jokes that were not funny <laughs> and um, <laughs> and these aren't just like puns like uh -huh -huh, like nice try, that's not funny. It would be like something like someone make a comment of, wow, oh no, the, the fern on our you know, kitchen table is dying, and she would rhyme it with burn and say, <laughs> burn. Awesome. But um, <laughs> I guess, I don't, it, jokes that were not funny. <laughs> a big paramount of that one. Uh, then it would go into stage three, where again, she would be super emotional. However, 
she would be the easiest person to deal with ever. She'd be so relaxed, so comfortable at this time. You know, Dad actually ended up getting another motors- motorcycle at the time. So. <laughs> so it worked out in some respects. But um, there would be major confusion on a, on a serious note. There would be major confusion to the point where she would not know how to clothe herself. She would not know uh, two plus two. And keep in mind, this woman is an accountant for the government, right? If it's one thing that she knows, it's numbers. And when two plus two was purple, you knew something was bad. And we would get answers like that. And another example of that would be if we would ask her something to, you know, evaluate for us, what stage is she at? How serious is this? What do we need to do to intervene at this stage? We would ask her different number questions or what is her birth date? She started getting smart with those things, um, although she was still at this mental, this altered mental state. Um, we would ask her her birth date in 10-21-57. Okay. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> Don't remember that. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, and then we would go on and ask her another question like, oh, what color are you wearing today? And she would give us that same answer. And that was not the right answer. <laughs> And so anyways, it, uh, she got really good at answering a lot of things. And at that point, she still had Facebook and texting and all those types of things. And so when we weren't around and monitoring what she was doing, she would be ruining our lives <laughs> on Facebook <laughs> in many, many respects. Uh, <laughs> And uh, she would schedule people to go visit other people that they had no idea of. And it's just, if you want more stories, believe we, we got them. So if you want to come up and ask us later more stories, we have them. But stage four was a walking coma. Uh, that is where she didn't know who anyone was. I remember going, I, I drove back from Andrews one night and arrived here at probably six, seven, eight o'clock at night during winter. Um, and... You know, I saw her in, in the hospital bed, and I came back, and she didn't know who I was. And that was extremely scary. I just want to mention before that, um, Heather had actually been called by us and said, you need to come home, because um, at this particular point, Mom went downhill faster than we'd ever seen her go downhill. So we drove her to the ER as fast as possible, and by the time we got her there, she wasn't able to speak. She wasn't able to say any words besides no. And we would ask her to squeeze our hand, and she couldn't. She wouldn't follow commands. She was laying in bed, writhing in pain, um, and not able to do anything else but scream and say no. Uh, so they transferred her upstairs to a reg- red- regular medical unit, and they called in a surgeon and her gastroenterologist immediately, and they were scared. Her gastroenterologist had been on her case for all seven years. Well, I think it was six and a half at this point. This was April of 2016. And he'd never seen anything like this. He's like, what do you guys want to do? What are her wishes? Does, does she want everything done if, if her heart's to stop? Like, we don't know what's going on, and we're going to have to do exploratory surgery to figure out what's going on, basically. We'd already been told she would not survive surgery. Her blood was too thin, and her liver was too weak to handle the sedation. Um, so basically, at this point, they handed Dad a consent and said, here, sign this for surgery, and he felt like he was basically signing away her life. Um, so at that point, we prayed. It was to the point I couldn't be in the room because it was 
so stressful of a time. Um, we prayed, the surgeon came up and he said, I'm gonna try one thing, just one thing prior to, prior to surgery. And uh, he tried that one thing, which was pretty non-invasive and it worked immediately. And she started coming around, so by the time Heather got home, she was at least able to talk. She may have not known who she was, but she was away from the edge of the cliff by that point, at least. And keep in mind, during that time, I had no idea of the details that was going on because it was so involved in the hospital room. So I am driving home at night after being told that mom is seriously in the hospital and I need to come home because they're asking about final wishes. <laughs> Put yourself in that position. I'm sure it's, it's hard and easy to imagine what you would feel, and that's probably what I was going through. Um, it was raining at the time and snowing, uh, but I wouldn't have been able to tell because I was crying the whole time. <laughs> but it ended up well, so it's worth it. That was... Um one of the darkest uh, incidents with uh, with her health, and and you know we we made many many trips to the ER that ended up nowhere near as dire as this one. But uh, I will tell you this: I'd never begged for mercy. In my prayer life, until that night. And he was merciful. I think one thing I want to add is that um, I mentioned that this was a dual surgery, which makes it, in addition to everything else, all the more rare. At the point I went into surgery, my critical score would be interpreted as less than 17% of the people having a liver in that condition without surgery would survive the next 90 days. So I was at death's doorstep. I was sitting there just waiting. And, you know, furthermore, there were only 20, I was the 26th person in that year to have that dual surgery. That's, that's just so incredibly rare that it, it bears um, mentioning. And I have one thing to add about that too. So the dual surgery, um, you had already mentioned the sleeve gastrectomy. So um, in her condition, she couldn't really lose weight. And that was part of the big thing that was a huge risk for surgery um, and a risk for not being able to recover as well after surgery. So everybody, every list said you have to lose weight first um, before the surgery or even after the surgery, either way. But she was told at Mayo Clinic if you get the surgery beforehand, you won't survive it. And if you get the surgery after it, it's too big of an infection risk. You have to get it. You have to get the sleeve gastrectomy at the same time as the transplant while they have you under. Um, and come to find out, Mayo Clinic is the only hospital in the United States that is qualified to do that surgery at this point. We didn't know that until we were there for her transplant, by the way. So nobody else would have touched, would have touched it? Okay. They wanted the to country. do them separately, do each surgery separately here before. They tried to talk me into it, and I said, well, if I need a liver transplant eventually, I want to do it while I'm in better health. Why am I waiting to decline in health? And they said, because only the worst get them. So you <laughs> have to wait your turn. But in the meanwhile, we could do the sleeve gastrectomy. I'm like, well, no, I, 
how will I recover from that with a bad liver? So it was a catch-22. I had to have both, and that's why Mayo required it. But even compounding all that we've already told you, the insurance coverage, at first they didn't want me to go to Mayo. They let me go for a consultation, but no diagnostic testing. So then we said, well, why did you pay for a consultation? I don't need just an opinion over the phone. If there's no diagnostic testing, they, so they agreed to pay for that or cover that. I was on an HMO plan here in Illinois. They didn't want me to leave the state. They said, well, whatever it is they're going to do, you can find somebody here to do it. They wanted to do the two surgeries separately, like I mentioned. But by the time the transplant actually came around and I was only on the list at Mayo and I had to have the operation at Mayo, two days after the actual surgery itself, I was still in the hospital recovering and Medicare kicked in. And all in all, this surgery that was slated to be like $600,000 was covered entirely by insurance. Wow. You sort of stole Ken's question, but it's okay. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, huh? Yeah, she is good with numbers. Well, I'm right? better than I used to be. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Were you going to say something else? No, I was just going to say she's, she's good with numbers, so it was appropriate. When I originally heard it from them, this, that the reason I was going to ask Ken is because he's the one who told me. He said, you know, $600,000 is nothing to sneeze at unless you're Rod or, you know, somebody like that. To be, to have that covered, because how much out of pocket did you pay? The um, for the surgery itself was about a thousand dollars, and I might even have been five hundred. I don't think there was anything that was not covered. Um, the I, important part was is that with it's HMO covered. plans, if you have it, HMO plans, you know that there's an out of pocket maximum that you have to pay through the, throughout the year. The fact that it was so late in the year, we way more than paid for our out-of-pocket maximum. So two days before she went on Medicare, she got the surgery, and they covered 100% of it because our out-of-pocket maximum was met. And even now, the paper that we were given in preparation for this surgery and all that you have to be prepared to undertake if you're going to have this. The paper said, well, you're in, in subsequent years, you can expect the anti-rejection medicines to run you twenty to $40,000 a year, the medication, after the surgery. Wow. Ours is nothing like that. We've, hmm. you know, we've got insurance, but even without insurance, for some reason, our medications just aren't that much, and I'm on one anti-rejection medicine for the rest of my life. The rest of it is inconsequential. And last time we went to Mayo, they cut that dosage in half. Mm -hmm. And one thing I was going to mention about the insurance, even to the day when the doctor came in and she was in the hospital here, and he said, she's in liver failure. We have to get her to a transplant center today, like by, by tonight, because she needs a transplant now. Um, and she was saying, well, we were saying, because she was kind of out of it, um, She's only been worked up at Mayo. Every place around here said no. Everybody pla every place around here already said they can't do it. So they said, well, let's try anyway, um, because that's the only place that her insurance would cover. Um, 
So when I got that call at home, I called our case manager and was kind of in hysterics. I feel really bad <laughs> about everything that went on there because she was, uh, she was in for it. <laughs> um, I wasn't like mad at her, but I was like freaking out, okay? So she, she might have been mad at I her. I might have been mad. <laughs> so um, she was like, okay, okay. I just wanted to make sure she understood the gravity of the situation. <laughs> Let's say that. So by the end of it, she ended up walking up to the director of Blue Cross Blue Shield for the state and said, who do you think you are keeping this woman from getting her life-saving surgery? And by the end of that day, the, the insurance covered her to go get treated at Mayo Clinic. So, so God used that woman. So for seven years, you know, we're looking, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. There's relief, there's praise, but for seven years, there was terror because you don't know the next, the next step. What did you do, just quickly, what did each of you do to deal with that stress? With having a nurse um, professor for a mother, you know, I was being filled in, probably uh, getting a lot more information than I probably should have had, I think. Um, the fact that my aunt had died, my mom's sister had died of liver cirrhosis, um, there was a lot of information that, that I was having a hard time processing. So how I dealt with it was um, lots of prayer and, and not looking too far in the future, you know, I, 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 I kind of held myself to thinking about what do I have to do next and not looking too far into the, the, the future because at that time it was pretty dark. What did I do? Mm -hmm. I went to my special place every now and then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my, my don't care, my I don't know what's going on, you know. Um, one of the notes as we were trying to recall the things to bring out in this um, service, one of the notes I reread, the doctor had noted um, that I was in denial that I had liver disease. So I guess it was pretty hard to, kind of tough to fight against something that you won't admit you have. Yeah, I mean, she knew something was going on for months before she let me in on it. I did not know until one day she called and said, you need to take such and such a date off. I think it was in August. Um, and I said, well, why is that? She goes, well, I'm going to be getting a liver biopsy. And I, for what? You know, that's how I learned about it. And then when we went to Dr. Kotler's office and he had this, this poster or chart with a bunch of stages on, here's a healthy liver, here's first stage, second stage, third stage, fourth stage. He walked up and he goes, okay, we are here. And I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? Because I had no idea. And it's not, like, it's not like I realized and just was keeping it to myself. I just didn't think it was that bad. It didn't feel that bad. And I think God protected me all through this because at no point, I mean, I suppose there were points, but I don't remember them now, where you just felt like, oh, this just can't go on like this. But for the most part, I was like, well, okay, you know, get up and go about your business again today. 
You know, I was working for a good part of these years. And for crying out loud, the street curbs were my guide. My, the wheels on my car are entirely nearly destroyed because I was bouncing against the curb trying to keep the car in my lane so that I wouldn't hit somebody else because I was too foggy to be driving. Okay, so um, I would say for me what I did to cope was think about what to do next because as a nurse I already kind of, you know, knew what was coming next, which again, like Dad said, was probably, you know, you know too much sometimes. And, um, but not only do what needs to be done next, but laugh whenever you can. And Heather helped with that one. <laughs> um, but more than anything, it was relying on God and really, really like abiding and seeking him. Because that relationship with God is everything that you need to get through a difficult situation. And listening to him, um, seeking him in his word, there was multiple times when I just, I call it Bible roulette, I just flip open. I was like, God, I don't even know where to look in the Bible right now for comfort, but I need something. So just open the Bible and you now have sorrow, but I will come again and you will have joy that no one can take from you. Um, that was one that I got frequently when she was in surgery. And just real quickly, there's, um, I would get dreams frequently about tornadoes, and often the, sometimes they were off in the distance, and sometimes they were closer to home. Uh, sometimes the skies were just very black in my dream, and I knew that there was a tornado coming. And this was all seven years, all seven years, up until this point. And at one point, I just found myself praying so hard one night, and you'd mentioned, Pastor, about the woman who just touched the hem of Jesus's garment, and I prayed that prayer one night, and I was just inconsolable. Um, and that night, I had a dream that the tornado, it, the tornado had always come close, but it had never actually, you know, made an impact in it, my immediate presence in the dream, right? So in this one dream, after I prayed that prayer, the tornado was coming, and we were running, and we were running, and the tornado circled around and came out on the other side and dissipated into a flock of doves. And I've never had another tornado dream since. And it was like the next day that she got her first TIPS procedure to help her bridge to transplant. So just abiding in God and looking for those subtle cues that he's with us and he's there for us. Okay, how I dealt with it... Um, <laughs> I self-labeled myself as the family optimist. <laughs> um, if you don't know me, I guess hopefully this whole presentation has showed you that too. But um, I prayed every night, and in, in addition to everything everybody else has done in just continuing trust in God, just knowing that you know whatever happens, God is good no matter what. Um, but as the family optimist, um, and being at school, it was a little hard for me to deal and to to deal with my feelings while being away from my family. And in other aspects, it was much easier for me to do that. Um, I had, I still have to this day the most incredible family friend group you can ever imagine, and they are praying friends, and they're so good to me. And God is good, um, but. Also, jokes. 
jokes helped. <laughs> and Nicole definitely helped with that too. Uh, whenever she was in some wacky emotional state, like we would just um, <laughs> not make fun of her, but yes, make fun of her. Um, I mean, she laughed with us, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> she probably didn't understand what was going on, but in, uh, we just, we, we bonded as sisters trying to get through this whole thing together. Um, and, and one thing I, I turned to was music. In, uh, I actually brought my ukulele one time when I was driving as fast as I could back from Andrews once again to meet everybody in the emergency room. And I just busted in the door with my ukulele and pretended like everything was fine. And I got the nurses outside singing a little bit and you know, I annoyed the neighbors a little bit, but I didn't really care. So um, hospitals are for healing. Man. And I figured the ukulele was part of that. So I did that. Um, but as the family optimist, it was a little bit hard to be the optimist at home and then come back to understanding everything that was really going on. And so that's where my friends really came in for me because I needed an optimist for me. So I apologize to you. And um, just because of time, we're, we're going to have to wrap this up. But I'm, gonna, I'm going to invite you, I think I have your permission, to if you have more questions about the story, because there's so much that wasn't said, um, please contact the Moore family at any time of the night. <laughs> no, no, anytime, just come up and talk to them. Um, my, my last question in a sentence or two, what do you want us to know through this experience, each one of you, sentence or two, and we're going to start down here. Was oh, that too much pressure? No, it's fine. So I could use many sentences, but the one I choose is God is good no matter what happens. Amen. Even if she wasn't to get a liver transplant, God is still good. Amen. Mine would be God is able to answer our prayers, and he does answer our prayers exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or imagine. I don't know what more I could add, but yes, God is good all the time. And again, thank you for your prayers, church family. Your prayers were heard and answered. And he listens to all of us individually and collectively, and he does answer. And his way is always the best for everyone concerned. The pastor's going to be mad. <laughs> um, one of the things that I learned about myself was that my faith wasn't nearly as strong as I thought it was at, at times. And the 23rd Psalm, that part where it goes, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We did walk through that valley. And he would never left us. You know, talking with this family post-transplant, um, so I, I only get to see the hindsight. You are a family of faith. And uh, ironically, the one who seems the most, you know, 
level-headed in this whole thing is, is Sharon, maybe because she doesn't remember a lot what was going on. <laughs> but, but what I've noticed talking to the other three is not just their renewed, deep devotion to the Lord, but their love for mom and wife. I've heard it constantly, their love for mom and wife. They love you. And it was renewed through this experience. Relationships were renewed. And we want to encourage you, hopefully through this story, because when Sharon does publish her first book about this, which that's what this exercise is partially about, um, we know that you will reach people for the cause of Jesus Christ. You remember the story of Lazarus, that, that remember when Martha comes out and it, she says, I know that you will raise him in the last day, but he raises him right there. Now, Lazarus is dead right now. He is. All those people that we saw those miracles in scripture are in waiting for the resurrection. But this is our hope, especially as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. We know, we don't believe, we know he is coming back and he will take those home with him where there will be no more death, sorrow, crying, and pain. So at this time, what we are going to do, we have one more point of sharing and, and the young ladies here, the Moore sisters, are going to share a song with you. Hopefully we got the nerves over with talking. Give us faith to be strong, Father, we are so weak. Our bodies are fragile and weary. And as we stagger and stumble to walk where you lead, give us faith to be strong. can be 
to take Give us peace when we're torn Give us hearts to find hope, Father, we cannot see How the sorrow we feel can bring freedom And as hard as we try, Lord, it's hard to believe So give us hearts to find hope Give us faith to be strong strength to be faithful this life is not long but it's hard give us grace to go on make us willing and able lord give us faith to be So apparently there will be a recorded CD that comes with the book. <laughs> Instead of uh, closing him, I would ask you just to stand with me and we're, we're going to do Aaron's blessing. Yevareka Adonai v'yishmareka, ya'er Adonai panav alecha v'chuneka. Yesa Adonai panav alecha v'yasem lecha shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Father, great is your faithfulness. We know that there is a day and it is soon approaching where you will return and you will eliminate death, sorrow, crying, and pain. Until that day, may we encourage each other with these stories. May we remember that we have a powerful God that will transform lives. Come soon, Lord Jesus. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I want to ask for you to give affirmation to how God has worked in their life, um, in the Moore family's life. I know it was not easy 
for you to come up here, but thank you for sharing your story. Just on a down note, we do have potluck downstairs, and immediately after that, which we would love for you to stay for, we have truth for youth. So happy Sabbath, everybody. We'll see you.